always good to get going in the month of April, and I love this season of the year. If you want to start heading toward Hebrews, uh, the book in the Bible that proves that God loves coffee. And a welcome once again to Centennial, uh, to the first Sunday in April. And I want to say thank you again to uh, everybody who helped in any way with our school uh, auction event this past Friday. We don't often uh, talk in church about our weekday ministries, but we're so thankful that, that you would go out of your way to help uh, those ministries that are reaching boys and girls and students and teaching them how to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Pastor Cole also mentioned about our small groups for this series. And if you're not in one you'd like to be, we want to get you in one today so that you can get uh, the maximum part of this series. And so I hope that uh, you'll ask after the service, uh, or you go to the kiosk, but ask an individual. Just talk to us. We'll get you uh, pointing in the right direction. Uh, also, I want to mention, uh, several weeks ago, I introduced a prayer for our efforts in Congo, Brazzaville, and told you that we're going to need to pray about uh, starting a fund to help with that project. And so today we are officially uh, putting a Congo project onto uh, our giving uh, app, website, text to give, uh, or if you do your check, you just write Congo, C-O-N-G-O on it. And we need about 20 to 30 people who would be willing to give 5 to $10 a week, that's it, uh, to help us with this project. And really, uh, I hate to even give this quote because 5 to $10 isn't that much, but F.B. Meyer said, uh, we never test the resources of God until we attempt the impossible. And I love that quote, and I hope that you'll get on board and help us with that project. Uh, the first meeting in Congo Brazzaville is scheduled to be uh, June 6th through 12th, and I'm going to be headed that direction uh, on June 5th and be there for about a week, meeting with uh, a steering committee of pastors from the entire country uh, who want uh, great commission, great commandment teaching throughout their churches. And so uh, be praying about it, and if you can possibly help us with that, please would you do that. Well, the book of Hebrews is a series of contrasts between the good things in Judaism and the better things in Christ. And the book itself, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, it is a masterpiece in persuasive writing. Uh, many scholars believe that the Apostle Paul was the human author, uh, just because of some of the various things in there, and you can look at that on your own. Uh, at the very least, though, the style and the point of view uh, is the same as the human author of Romans. And, and the book was certainly written before the destruction of the temple uh, by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD, which is another history story I have to tell you this morning to set this up. But I remember from last week, that some of you really like history, uh, especially really first service, there were a lot of people who did like history. Uh, how many of you were the ones that like history? I can't remember, okay. Oh, a lot of you, okay. So you may remember this. Uh, Jesus was leaving the temple one afternoon, and somebody made a comment on the massive stones and the huge buildings that were part of the temple complex. And, and Jesus stopped and, and looked back and said, uh, Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
In other words, uh, don't be too impressed with this temple. It's a teardown. And, and the guys all looked at each other like they had many times before. They're like, Jesus, are you making a joke? Is this a riddle? Is this a parable? Uh, do you know how long it took to build this temple? Uh, all the stones from this 37-acre plaza are going to be thrown down, right, into the valley? Seriously? How could that ever happen? And, and they had a point because the foundation stones weighed about 500 tons each. Uh, they were earthquake-proof, and it would require an army to even move them. Well, later that day, they're on the Mount of Olives, and, and so they asked Jesus. They kind of got off to themselves like, Jesus, please explain this to us. And, and so Jesus gave this more detailed and ominous prophecy. He said, when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Uh, the temple is about to be defiled and torn down. And then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter in thereto. And in this prophecy, Jesus wasn't predicting the end of the world. Uh, he could have, because he could predict anything, but he wasn't doing revelation type stuff. He was predicting something local. Yeah, how do we know? We know because 40 years later, it all came true. The soon-to-be-elected emperor of Rome, uh, a general named Vespasian, trapped thousands of Jews inside the city. Many thousands, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, this was the end of a brutal four-year campaign. Historians call it the Judean War. And as Vespasian's army approached the city, thousands of Jews were coming from around the region for a religious festival. The general kindly ushered them all into the city and then had the city sealed off, leaving thousands and thousands more mouths to feed so starvation would happen more quickly. And when the 10th Roman legion finally punched through the massive wall, the population and the pilgrims were literally starving. Here's what the Jewish historian Josephus said. Listen to his quote. This is crazy. The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy, were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamber over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. That's Josephus' quote. Uh, hundreds of thousands of survivors were sold to slave traders. But, but that's not all. When the Romans got to the temple district up on the hill, it was well defended. Rebels uh, fought to protect the temple mount, and priests stood on top of the roof wailing, uh, singing Jewish wailing songs pleading for a miracle. The Romans went in and burned everything that would burn. And then Titus, Vespasian's son, uh, defiled the temple and ordered that every stone used to construct the temple be unstacked, dragged to the edge, and pushed down into the valley below. By the way, some of those stones are still there. Jesus predicted this would happen. Now, why did he predict it, and why did I tell you this story anyway? 
because something better than the temple had arrived. Something better than the temple had already come. The temple era abruptly concluded. Judaism, in its Old Testament form, was no longer even an option. Never again during the Age of Grace would there be a temple sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews, written before the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, gives us this persuasive argument that shows that Jesus was better than all of the good things in Judaism. Jesus, the Son of God, is not just another prophet, priest, or king. He is the express image of God. He is God himself. Let's read in Hebrews the opening verses of the book. God, who at sundry times and in divers matters spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And so today we're going to be talking about the deity of Christ. And how important it is to our faith. It is one of the necessary things. And we start by saying this. That Jesus was better than the angels. Better than the angels. Now, now we don't have to get uh, into a study of angels this morning. We actually don't have time to do that. But I think everyone knows that angels are pretty cool beings. And they're probably even more unique and special than Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but if you look at me, uh, look, no, look at me, but look at verse number four. Uh, let's look at this. Look what it says about Jesus. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, you may remember that from Luke 2, right? The angels came to announce the birth of Jesus. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now look, the gospel that Jesus accomplished confirms that he is greater than any created beings, including the heavenly principalities and powers. Now, we don't know exactly when the angels were created in a, a biblical way, but some people say between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. <laughs> That's what some people say. Uh, we do know that, though, that they've been created. They aren't eternal. They were originally designed to be servants and messengers of God. The fall of Lucifer, which is recorded in Isaiah 14, uh, proves at least a couple things to us. And we won't go too deep, but there are two things it proves. Angels 
were made, created to surround the throne of God, but never to sit upon it. Okay, they were made to, to serve around the throne, but not to sit upon the throne. The second thing we know from Isaiah 14 is that angels have free will. Uh, when Lucifer rebelled, one-third of the angelic beings followed him and were permanently cast out of heaven. That's a lot. Okay, here's what's important. I don't want you to miss it. Jesus is better, higher, faster, greater, and every other ER you can think of than the angels. Uh, take a look back at Ephesians chapter 1. And we won't belabor the point, but I do want to show you this. Ephesians 1, 17. Ephesians 1, 17. <clears throat> that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now look at this. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus, better than the angels, is part of his deity. The next thing we see, though, is this. Jesus is better than the prophets. Better than the prophets. Now, prophets had been the mouthpiece of God in Israel for literally thousands of years before Jesus showed up. From the time of Adam to the time of John the Baptist, God spoke to and through a variety of people in a variety of ways. Uh, Noah was a great preacher of righteousness before the flood. Uh, he preached for almost a hundred years the same sermon. And his converts included his wife, his three sons, and their wives. That's it. And his story really doesn't work for people who focus only on numeric results. <laughs> but then there was Abraham, and Abraham heard from God after the flood. Uh, Joseph interpreted dreams through God's power. Later, Daniel did the same thing. Uh, there was Moses. We'll get to him later. There was Joshua and some judges and Samuel and David and Elijah, who was a really quirky guy, got fed by ravens at a brook. Uh, they brought him bread. Uh, there was Elisha, who another quirky guy who got made fun of one day by some kids because of his bald head, and he yelled at them in the name of the Lord, and two bears came and ate them. Forty-two of them. That's how exact God is in his word. But the list goes on and on. We didn't even get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel or any of the later prophets, including the final prophet, John the Baptist. But now... Jesus had come, and God had spoken directly to humanity through his Son. We read that in Hebrews 1-2. Now, here's the thing. None of the biblical prophets, none of them, ever claimed to have deity. 
None of them ever claimed to be God. In fact, listen to this quote from the last prophet, John the Baptist. Here's what he said. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. And so none of the prophets ever claimed to be God, but Jesus forcefully claimed to be God because he is God. Now look again at Hebrews. Yeah, you've got to flip back there to Hebrews 1. I want you to see this again. Verse number 1. God, who at sundry times, so many, many different times, many different ways, and at diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Jesus is better than the prophets. Now, one day, when Jesus was here on the earth, uh, Jesus asked uh, Pete and Jimmy and John uh, to take a walk with him up in the mountains. And uh, they walked up in the mountains, and, and when they got to the top, uh, Jesus was shown in his authentic glory. Not fully, but just a glimpse of it anyway. And, and Moses and Elijah showed up to talk with him. Well, our buddy Peter uh, threw out an idea. Jesus, it is really good we're all here today. This is great. And I propose that we make three tabernacles up here. Uh, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, Peter didn't even finish his sentence before a cloud, unlike any they had ever seen, came overhead. And a voice came out of the cloud, a voice that instantly made the disciples fall on their faces in worship. Here's what the voice of God said. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. In other words, something better than the prophet's has arrived. Get the picture? Well, Peter did, and he wrote about it in 2 Peter 1. He said this, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There was a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So yeah, Jesus was better than the prophets. But then he also was better than the priests. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. Uh, so Hebrews goes much deeper into this topic than we can possibly go today. But we're going to hit some basics. The name Moses carried maximum credibility with the Jews for centuries. Moses who had been the one uh, who went up and heard from God on Mount Sinai. And he had brought back the tables of stone written with the finger of Jehovah. Now, he had anointed the first high priest of Israel, his brother Aaron. But now Moses was dead. And a much higher authority announced a much higher priest. So check out Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 1. Wherefore, holy brethren... <clears throat> partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, 
who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Now look at this. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. I love that. Now most people don't get that. Right? Uh, pantheists who worship creation, they don't get it. We're supposed to worship the one who spoke creation, not the creation he spoke. We're supposed to worship the one who made us instead of worshiping each other. And, and so here's the deal. He said, listen, you guys like Moses. Moses is great. He was a wonderful guy. He did good things. Jesus is much, much better because Jesus is the one who made it all. Moses is just the one who was there when it was made. He's better than Moses. Now, uh, from here you go through Hebrews, and we'll do it. Let's do a Cliff Notes version of Hebrews, okay? Did you guys ever use Cliff Notes when you were in school? Were those around back then? Now they just hop on the internet and pull a report. Uh, and you kids shouldn't do that, by the way, because your teachers can Google any sentence in your report and find out if you plagiarized. Oh, I didn't know if you knew that. <laughs> Right? They just take any phrase and they're like, oh, this came from Ted Phillips' paper in Akron, Ohio in 2008. Yeah, you guys didn't know what teachers know, did you? Uh, okay, so yeah, Cliff Notes version, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And folks, we don't have to go through any human priest to get to God. We now have the ultimate priest who sits right at the throne of God. And we can go directly to him. Because of Jesus, those who believe have become priests ourselves. We can take our complaints and our cares and our concerns straight to the throne of grace. I hate to skip chapters 5 and 6, but you're going to have to study that on your own. Look at chapter 7. All right, 723. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So the author of Hebrews says there were a lot of priests because they all kept dying. Because people thought, boy, the priest, the high priest, oh, he's the guy. Yeah, they kept dying. Uh, but this man, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the words of the oath 
which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. You may want to read that one again this week. Powerful, powerful. Now chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse number 11. But Christ, being come and a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now look, the priests of the Old Testament, they had to go in and offer the blood of an animal once a year to cover the sins of the nation. But the better priest, Jesus Christ, offered his own blood once on a wooden cross. He sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. And that's why Jesus is the essence of deity. And he is better than the priests. Okay, so, so deity says Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. Before we get to this last point, I want you to see a video that I took of some kids this past week because I loved the song that they were doing. And uh, I think you're going to find this. Kindergartners have no problem with the doctrine of Jesus and deity. They get it. Jesus is God. Totally, completely. Here you go. Enjoy. is better than the kings. Better than the kings. You know, King David was admired by the Jewish people, not only during his time, but through the reigns of many other kings. And even after uh, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel were both gone, David was still admired through captivity and oppression. In fact, they were still talking about King David when Jesus showed up. 
But now, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords had arrived. And one day, Jesus was being asked all these trick questions by the, the religious crowd in Jerusalem. And so they brought out their, uh, their shell game and their card trick. And they brought all of it. Uh, Jesus said, uh, where do you get your authority? Jesus, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus, is it lawful uh, to pay taxes to the Romans? Uh, hey, Jesus, there was this woman who ended up marrying seven different brothers. Uh, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Uh, they were digging stuff deep into their question back until finally they ran out of questions. So Jesus figured that it was a great opportunity to ask them one. He's like, okay, hey, fellas, uh, what do you guys think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? One of them raised his hand. I got this. He's the son of David. He's so proud of himself, right? Like the kid in the school who just got asked to spell chrysanthemums. Like, got this. Jesus is like, okay, okay. Then why did David call him Lord if he son? And then Jesus quoted from the psalm that we're about to read, Psalm 45. And nobody could answer his question. In fact, they never asked him questions again. He was too smart and they were too embarrassed. And so I guess we should look at Psalm 45 for ourselves. What did David say about Christ and how does it factor in to the doctrine of deity? So Psalm 45, the psalm of the king. Look what he said. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Now look what David said. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, who's God? Messiah's God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. And we could go on and read the whole rest of the, the Psalm of the King. But listen, David, David tells us that a better king is coming. And now the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ had arrived. And he was indeed better. Better than Superman. Better than Barbie. Better than angels. Better than prophets. Better than priests. Better than kings. Jesus. J. You got your J, you got your J. E. You got your E, you got your E. S. You got your S, you got your S. 
U, you got your U, you got your U. S, you got your S, you got your S. What's that spell? Yeah, you guys are weak. I worked hard for that. I thought you guys would, like, burst out. I'm not giving you another chance. i to save my voice. Why is the topic of deity so important to our faith? And, and this is where we want to get to today, because sometimes we look at deity as this abstract thing that's like, okay, it's in this doctrine book that's in a library somewhere. Uh, no, actually... Deity is the very foundation of your personal faith. And uh, when you ask this question, why is the topic of deity so important to our faith? Hopefully you already know the answer, but just in case you don't. If Jesus was not really God, then he was a complete fraud. Because he claimed to be God. He said he could forgive sins. He showed that he had power over life and death. He claimed to answer prayers. Good teachers don't lie to their students about their identities. Jesus was either everything he said he was, or he was a complete fraud. And that's why the deity of Christ is a necessary thing. It's a foundational part of our faith. As we close, though, I hope you get this last little part. Yes, Jesus is God. Uh, the triune Godhead is legit. Deity is true. But none of that matters for you if you haven't made him the Lord of your life. Right? All these things about Jesus are true. We could study him all day long. But none of it matters if you've never made him Lord of your life. If you haven't trusted in Jesus as you God, you're missing out on the power to become his child. John 1.12 says it this way, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Isn't that powerful? It's so simple. But Jesus was the word who became flesh. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. By him, all things were created. By him, all things consist. In fact, if there were no Jesus who is God, there's no anything. There's no us. There's no evolutionists. There's no atheists, right? Without God, there's no atheists. Without God, there's no ag agnostics. And yet, people take the abstract, like, okay, well, let's argue about this for a while. That's not why God gave us the Bible. He didn't give us the Bible to fill ourselves with knowledge and get puffed up or to be able to argue it. He gave us the scriptures to know who Jesus is and why he came and how we should allow him to live through us every day. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you so much that we could come and talk about who you are this morning. 